you only do the Hodge Verite when it's someone like um, Andy Hodge or, or um, Eric Murray or, you know, someone famous. When it's just yeah. me and you, you know, I, I'm not going to do the, the us fanning around trying to find our notes bit, although I might leave that bit in because people might not believe we actually make notes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the, we're not going to call it the Olympic issue, even though it blatantly is the Olympic issue. We're going to call it the Masters D issue because when we're going to launch this, um, on our unusual date of Thursday, my esteemed co-host, Dr. Aaron Jackson, Esquire, is going to be officially a Masters D rower at the, the glorious age of 48. That is indeed correct. We have been away for a little while as we have uh, enjoyed rowing as much as we've enjoyed talking about it previously. And we're launching uh, back into the Broken Nose podcast with a proper Olympic special, uh, which my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lewin Hines, has pointed out is landing perilously close to a birthday of mine. Uh, I say a birthday of mine, I only have one. It's the 22nd of July. And unlike my sister, who has stayed uh, 27 for most of the last two decades, for some uh, reason that only women know about, uh, I will be apparently a Masters D rower. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that, really, if I'm being honest. I hate to say it, but in this case, facts don't care about your feelings, Aaron. <laughs> You're still going to be a Masters D rower. I know, but I, I just I just feel like, obviously I'm slower, and obviously Agecroft aren't going to ring at any point and say, look, we've had issues on Bowside since you left. Will you please come back? But I, I guess I'm just I'm still in the phase of just going out for a paddle because I've really enjoyed reconnecting with the sport. I, I have no competitive ambitions, and I realise that Dennis is now writing to me even as we speak, saying I, I knew you were never a real Agecroft rower because Agecroft rowers are competitive until the Grim Reaper comes for them, and then they fight him off. The birthday is significant in the sense of when I was little, when I was just a little boy. It always arrived at the end of term, uh, so I always knew that I had six weeks holiday to come, and because my entire family. Uh, my mum and all of her brothers and sisters as teachers there was always a massive party which I used to think was somehow connected with me until I started teaching myself and I realised it was all of the teachers of the family basically going yes we've made it through another year let's go to my mum's house and um, have a wild party they always brought cards and there was always a, a cake but they ate the cake and frankly they always seemed to have a much better time of it I, I, I can understand being a teacher I, I can definitely understand Speaking of Agecraft and Masters Rowing, who, who do you think I saw last weekend, uh, the, the Henley Masters weekend, which is in danger of becoming a considerably bigger and more fun event to be at than Henley itself? Who do you think I should run into? A t-shirt that says, putting the age into Agecraft. Was it somebody that you used to row with? Let's narrow it down. Uh, yes, I rode with him on several occasions. In fact, one of our more famous guests was uh, was taught to row by him. It wasn't Robbie McFarlane, the man who taught Robbie Andrew McFarlane, the man who taught Andrew Trick Hodge to row, the man who taught Andrew Trick Hodge to scull, the man for for whom Andy owes all of his Olympic golds and World Championships medals. Yeah, Robbie was there. He was he was rowing in loads of boats. He, he was being a proper little tart. So he, I think he was in at least two composite and in one Agecroft boat. Um, and bizarrely, he didn't, he didn't win everything. Um, unlike the last time I've seen Robbie out of Masters. And what's more, I don't know if he's just got a bit old and put on some weight, 
But he's looking properly tonk these days. As in fit, ripped and yeah. buffed in a, in a, in a, in a Chris R- Hemsworth sort of style. Yeah, no, not in a Chris Hemsworth. Considering what we talked about last time, definitely not in a Chris Hemsworth sort of style. Nobody was asking Robbie to pee in a cup, apart from that strange gentleman who's hanging around outside the toilet. Yeah, there's always that um, strange gentleman at Henley who gets you to pee in a cup. It took me a long time to realise that he wasn't actually part of the regatta, but by then I just used to enjoy it. Moving on. You know, Robbie always used to be the Tim Foster of Agecroft, the, the technical genius without the immense physical stature. And I'm, I'm suddenly thinking... My God, he's got like he, there's a there's a proper s- set to that man's chest now. I, I, I think he's hit the weights in a big way. Right. Okay. And and so, um, you 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 mentioned that he was being a bit of a tart, uh, which was always a feature of, of, of his rowing at Agecroft. Uh, I'm speaking. Yeah, no, in- no. You you could never tell when Robbie would not be available for rowing at Agecroft because he was rowing some dodgy Sheffield club. Yeah, I, I, I mean totally in a boating sense, not in any other kind of tarting about sense. Well, not before you'd have four points at any, any rate. Enough casting aspersions on the good name of Robbie McFarlane, who, let's face it, we have nothing sort of like... The worst thing he ever did was get a bit flirtatious on the Santa Dis pub crawl, and then he's mostly being flirtatious with Sean. Yeah, I was really upset about that because at the start of the night, he was definitely coming on to me. We had a tender moment on the dance floor. And yet by the time Sean got down to his budgie smugglers and his coconut oil, nowhere to be seen. But let's actually, if you were at Henley Masters, that means that you must have been rowing, Lewin. I was actually doing some competitive rowing. So it was the first run out for the, for the Spitfire Boat Club quad. We, we went out there, we borrowed somebody else's boat, Arding Lai, thank you so much, and we had a thrash in it. And it was an absolutely lovely boat, much nicer boat than anything we've got at Spitfire. And we lost because we're, we have a great mixture of experience in the crew, and we also had to bring in a ringer. Uh, so Lenny, thank you very much. Yeah, we, we lost the city of Bristol, who were a very, very fine crew and a very kind of like, you know, I the last time I was at Stroke on the Henley Reach and I spent that little time being able to see the boat, it, 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 we were getting beaten by Greenlight. Um, so they, they, they taught us, but it was very much to go there to say, this is Spitfire boat club going racing for the first time and then i did my own tarting about in the immensely enjoyable um las vegas institute of sport eight lvis the elvis eight which is a which is an international boat of mystery many many of whom the members of which were saying i you know i genuinely i haven't picked up an oar in two years or five years but they still jumped into it and we had a blast, actually. Uh, so we had two races against Kingston, who won, which put us in in the final against Crabtree. And I'd just like to say thanks to Kingston for a great race. Crabtree, that was a boat stuffed with Olympians from 96 and 88. There were at least two Cambridge Blue Strokes, two members of the... Yeah, two members of Goldie were in there, 
and there was this one guy called Tim Mayle. Now, given Crabtree is a Cambridge alumni boat, people were pretty quick to point out that Tim Mayle's never been to Cambridge, but then I've never been to Las Vegas, so it all evens out. And Tim Mayle is one of the very few lightweights in the world who's my age who can absolutely hand me my ass on the rowing machine. And it's quite strange to look over, you know, when you do that thing where you are, you meant to look over at the guy who's opposite you in your seat in the boat and you just, yeah, I, I reckon, yeah, I can take you. You're a big lad, but you know, you've got a bit of a gut on you. And that, that was the guy at six, uh, Phil, I believe his name is. But to actually look back and see, ah, oh, yeah, there's this little guy sitting at five in the engine room and just think, I know for a fact I can't beat him. That, that was quite worrying. And so we got beaten. We got beaten, but we gave them a race. And they actually put in the fastest time of the day to beat us. So, so you pushed them? We pushed them. We made, we made them breathe hard. And, yeah, we, we were there... And it was a blast of a race. Um, Al, our stroke man, is one of these people who is capable of winding a boat up to 38 strokes a minute and keeping it there for three minutes. And that was, that was a very new experience for me. And genuinely, it didn't feel like I was in control. It was just like, oh, this is going to go wrong. <laughs> this is going to go horribly wrong very soon. And we made it to the end of... We made it to the end of the course in a remarkably quick time. I don't quite know how. It worked out very well, and it was a really good, fun race. And I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who was there. Um, even the guy from Crabtree, who was sitting in six, who's bigger than me, blonder than me, and better looking than me, and probably a better rower. So, so can I ask when you wound it up to thirty-eight, which is a which is a stroke rate that um, neither of us has seen recently? W- were you actually um, using any of the slide, or were you just basically going oh, yeah. like your yeah, yeah. arms and body? I was, I was using at least you know four or five centimeters of it. A whole four or five centimeters. <laughs> a whole four or five centimeters. No, I mean I, I genuinely think I was getting something very close to full slide in that boat. Um, and I think I might have actually been in time and everything. I've seen videos where it looks like, oh, yeah, the, the blade's going in at the same time as everybody else and coming out at the same time as everybody else. That's not bad. So this whole thing that, that, that you know, as we get to our age and, and our children and our loved ones send us, you know, the older I get, the better I used to be, you're actually better now than when you were actually a proper decent athlete because I remember being in a boat with you and, and one of the comments that I used to regularly say was that at some point you will find the time of the rest of the boat. I mean, admittedly, <laughs> I, admittedly I said it from a distance while, while running before you could catch me and I didn't actually mean it, but uh, yeah. Um, yes, it, it, I, I think it was a little bit, you know, I, I have managed, I have learned how to stay in time with other people in the boat. So now you've actually... It makes the catches feel incredibly easy. <laughs> oh, no. Seriously, no, this is important. The Cox, Hannah, in our boat, literally one of the funniest Coxes I've, I've had the pleasure of rowing with in a very long time. Possibly as a hyper-aggressive racing Cox, you know, even just from like two blasts down the Henley. There's not a lot of steering to be done, but she's absolutely brilliant. 
And I don't want to say too much about it because it's very clear. If you're in the boat, she pays the marshals and umpires the respect she believes they deserve with a smile on her face. You, you just felt like, this is hilarious. We've literally got somebody. Imagine Ali Chapman in a 55 kilogram female package. Scary. That was Hannah. And yeah. basically steering the boat and kind of just essentially saying, you will go faster or I'll kill you. I'm just trying to visualize Ali Chapman or, or Chapman, my Chapman in, in a, a 55. I mean, obviously, so like not, you know, without the chin. That's 20 kilos off him straight away. And he's, he's pushing down towards the right weight then. But it's just the idea of Ali in a female form. Oh, Chapman, my Chapman. Yes, a certain dry, laconic wit. And we'd just like to say, you know, if we do actually still have any listeners out there, that having had people like Tez on on, on the, the podcast, we have nothing but huge respect for uh, umpires and marshals, especially those on the Henley Reach, that, and we've never had any issues with them at all. Much. No, no not at all. Not at all. Um, so, so now that we've wasted at least 45 minutes talking absolute nonsense, which is, let's be fair, the raison d'etre of the Broken Horse podcast, and what are we actually, we, we are start, we're not starting again, but we've had a bit of time off because we, we wanted to actually get out on the water as much as talk about it. And we're coming back in with, with, with an episode that's for some reason, and we seem to do this so often, we talk absolute nonsense. And then by the time we release it, it's pertinent and uh, prescient. Uh, you know, we had the, the Jürgen episode and, and what are we actually talking about today? Is it the fact that we have recently been described as funny and quirky? By the doyen of um, rowing social media. Indeed. Trisha Carswell. We have been, which was absolutely lovely of her. Um, funny and quirky and prepared to talk about all the issues regardless. Whether anybody wants us to talk about yeah. them or not. I mean, or, or whether it just like puts us into the, the bad books of like literally everybody with any power and influence out there. Over Let's the be books. honest. I mean, if we actually stick to what the notes that we have, and yes, dear listener, if you are still out there, we don't just make this up. We occasionally make some notes, not that we actually use them. No one in British rowing, and by British rowing, we mean the institution is ever going to talk to us again, because we are talking about, this is not just our Master's D episode, because I am ancient and decrepit, and, and Lewin is a, a mere youngster, a mere slip of the lad. This is the Olympics episode. And, you know, so... Things that I believe we're talking about, and I'm, I'm scrolling through the notes here, is first of all, we're going to talk about the Olympics itself mm -hmm. and just, just how much money is spent, how much training should Olympians actually be doing, mm -hmm. um, whether or not like all these people who are basically paying out mortgages and pensions by working in British Olympic sport, how necessary are all of them? I am raising the question. Are we raising the Eric Murray question of it's the, it's the Olympians with the medals who at 32 and 36 go off to try and start a career, but actually yeah. um, the people in the on the administrative side and the coaching side end up having very, very nice careers and very, very good pension packages and don't end up needing hip surgery. That's one of the questions that we're asking. Yes, I think, I think we should ask that. I think we should also, uh, I want to come back and try and have a structured discussion about the Helen Glover paradox. 
Well, you're going to need a different co-host because that's not something that I can do. And I, I think we need to talk about the return to the track of the Great Britain cycling team. Just how, I'm, I'm going to say not what I think about this, but I, I want to talk about what I feel about the return to the track of the Great Britain cycling team. Well, I, for one, I am really looking forward to it because for the last, last 10 or 11 years, we've heard nothing about British cycling. Absolutely nothing. There's been nothing in the news. There's been nothing of any note. There's been no scandals. There's been no issues. There's been no massively public falling outs. There's been no court cases. I just think it's great to see them doing what they do best again. Yeah, with, without a single kind of, you know, cloud of issues hanging over them. They only have clouds over them, Loon, because they've based themselves in Manchester. If they'd been remotely sensible, they would have done what British rowing did and, you know, found somewhere down south where it never rains, apart from in London recently, which is now underwater. Every other rowing podcast has already done their Olympics episode. And and we're talking proper people. We're talking people like Patricia. We're talking people like Martin Cross. We're talking ex-Olympians. We're talking coaches weighing in who's going to win this who's going in what boat category you know how's it all going to break down what's the shakedown being and being broken oars that's not what we're doing we're going in the opposite direction essentially yeah i mean so like got all those people who could who've probably like written the kind of notes where they've got lists of names of people who are actually you know in gb boats all i know is that it's like yeah there are two blokes in the gb boat who have beaten 540 for a 2K and one bloke who beat the half marathon record and he did it at 138. Right now, I want you to go away and I want you to try, if you're a man, I want you to just go and try on the rowing machine and try and pull 138 and see how far you get. And if you're good, you'll get to about 2K. And you probably won't get to 3K. If you're very good, as in genuinely, go and talk to London Rowing Club, go and talk to Agecroft, go and talk to Molesy, you'll get to 5K. This guy did it for 21K and change. I I know we've seen stuff like this before, and it's not a world record. That was Eric Murray who did it at 136. But I still, I genuinely struggle to comprehend both the bravery and the ability that goes into a feat like that. I, I, I am genuinely gobsmacked by that. Let's talk about the Olympics themselves. Let's talk about should they be going ahead? Should they exist in their current form? Should they exist at all? You have fundamentally very controversial opinions about the Olympics. And I, I think we need to get them out there. I don't think I have controversial views about the Olympics per se. I, I used to enjoy them as a, as, a, as a sporting smorgasbord. I no longer enjoy them as much because every sprinter that ever seems to win the 100 metres eventually gets pinged for doping. Ditto the 200 metres, also the 400 metres. Ditto, you know, the 800 and the 1500. Um, ditto most of the weightlifting can, 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 can I just stop you there? Lisa Dobrinsky, she came 10th, I think, in 2012. She's now up to fourth. <laughs> yeah. God. It's such a brilliant way of just like planning your athletics career. I'm just going to hit top 10 and wait. I think by next year she'll have got a bronze and within a few years, who knows, um, Let's remember London 2012 as, 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 as £9 billion well spent 
a wonderful legacy of sport in this country that's combated uh, uh, obesity and falling participation levels through a brilliant, structured and well-thought-out manner. And let's not think about the fact that it's possibly the dirtiest games in history. The second dirtiest games in history. I maintain this. What was the first? Atlanta. This is a theoretical... Okay, right. The dirtiest games in history would have been Moscow. So well, you say that. Because I've, I've, been, I've been reading up on the history of this, and this is really important. The IOC only banned steroids. So your classic, your Diana Bowls, your Trembolones, your exogenous testosterone, only banned them in 1975. Right. So five years before. So testing was like, what you might describe as a fairly rudimentary affair with something like a two-week detection window for something like Dianabol, which is now, you can probably get out to like six, eight, nine weeks. Um, nobody who's in sport takes Dianabol unless they know they're going to be a very long way away from anyone who can knock on their door and ask them to pee in a cup. Not that guy who hangs around outside the toilets at Henley. So it was five years after that. It's Moscow. It's Russia. Let's face it. Even the most famous British winner, if you look at pictures of him in Moscow, and then you look at pictures from the guy put on three stone of muscle. No, nobody is just like, everybody's just looking at that and saying, okay, look, it was a different age. But let's talk about Atlanta. And it's really, really important because a lot, certainly in my head, until I looked it up, I didn't realize how recent some of the things that we consider to be absolutely and completely part of drug testing were. So in Atlanta, there was no test for exogenous testosterone that was in place. They designed one, but it wasn't being used. There was no reliable test for erythropoietin. And this was a year before the Festina affair, when basically the Tour de France went on strike because the Festina team had had its EPO confiscated. I mean, that's how bad it was. So there's no test for exogenous testosterone, very powerful, performance-enhancing drug. Erythropoietin, very powerful, performance-enhancing drug. No test for human growth hormone. The testing, there was no out-of-competition testing in the run-up to Atlanta. So just, just have a think about that. So all these drugs, the full panel, the full list of modern doping agents was available. Was cornucopia the word you were looking for? No, panoply. Panoply is also panoply. There we go. The, the full panoply of modern doping agents was available. So all the anabolic steroids, the testosterone, the EPO, the blood doping, the um, human growth form and all available, but there's no out of competition testing. There was no whereabouts rule. These things are all post Atlanta, pre Sydney. So actually, things really tightened up after Atlanta. Um, no whereabouts rule, no athlete biological passport. That's a very recent invention. That's post 2012. And the reason why they call London, and basically I think this is just, there is a certain strain of American journalists that 
hates the UK. And so they just, I think they leapt on the chance to call this the dirtiest games in history. The reason why they called it the dirtiest games in history because we were the first games to store samples and say, we're going to have like nine years in which we can go back to those samples and test them again with the new and better tests. And yeah. this was why they popped so many weightlifters for oral terrenable. So it wasn't that we were the dirtiest games in history. We were the best at catching cheats in history. Yeah, we were the cleanest game in history because we caught more cheats. If I'm right about Atlanta being the dirtiest games of history, Atlanta was also the least successful British Olympics in history in the modern era. And I take some measure of pride in that. We really earned those six bronze and three silver and one gold. Okay. I, 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 I think there are plenty of people who've, who've got away with murder in London. Yeah, when did Mo start working with Alberto again? I, I don't know who either of those people are. I don't know what you're referring to. Fair enough. I'm just saying it's the cleanest games in history because it will piss off the American journalists who can't get over the fact. The reason that they're sore at Great Britain is because Britain was better at being an imperial power than America was, even though you can fit Britain into Texas four times in a row. We're tiny yeah. by comparison, uh, which, which raises the question, and this is a sidebar, and we're getting off topic wildly, which is basically what this podcast is all about. Um, but we've recently seen huge strides made in things like um, the women's sprint events and in and, and, and other, uh, and other events. We've had a pandemic for 16 months that has probably made whereabouts and uh, out-of-competition testing quite difficult, I would imagine. Are these, are these things down to the fact that we suddenly have magic shoes, Lou, in these, these new times, the fact that Flo Joe's record is, is under pressure? Flo Joe's record is one of the, the 1049 that have stood for, I don't know how long it is, is one of the most egregious and blatant examples of administrative corruption in the, you call it in the, in the annals of sports, sports, but I'm just going to say in athletics full stop, because if you look at that record, it was a windy day. Essentially, every event, that had been run on the 100 metres track was considered illegitimate for a record because the wind, the tailwind was too strong. Yeah. So all through the day, there was significant tailwinds, significant tailwinds, significant tailwinds. Suddenly, at the time of Flojo's race, the wind dropped to precisely zero. It, Not, it, hap it happens a it lot. Slow down. Lot. It didn't blow the other way, there wasn't some weird eddy pattern, zero wind. They didn't, and then with what was, let's face it, probably a tailwind, she ran a record that hasn't been beaten. Well, it's, it's 1988's um, Seoul Olympics, wasn't it? So what's that, 33 years now? That was evidence that a media star, as well as a star athlete, and if you are a media star, it would seem that you can get the powers that be in athletics, both at a national level and an international level, to overlook 
pretty egregious. Sorry, call it cheating. I honestly don't know how you can say that. I mean, you look at someone like Lance Armstrong and he was, he never got any favours done to him by anybody while he was winning things ever. No one ever covered up for him. In, in, in case people are wondering, Aaron was being sarcastic there. Aaron was genuinely being sarcastic because he's Northern and, you know, he's That's... in danger of being eaten by flying dragons in, that live in the precipitous cliffs near his house. But, okay, Lance was helped out blatantly by the UCI, but cycling is, in comparison to international athletics, a very, very small pond. Lance was an incredible athlete. Lance was a very, very committed and very careful and very wise doper. But flat out, you can see that corruption would exist in the small world of that kind of, it's not, it's not even Olympic cycling. It doesn't have the oversight of the Olympics behind it. It's just UCI road cycling. You, you can look at that setup and kind of go, yeah, I can see, see how that can go dirty. Athletics is bigger than that. Running is one of the only genuinely international sports. There are apparently three sports that everybody in the world does. That's running, boxing, and football. And if you are that big and you can't not play favourites because somebody has funny hair and cuts one leg of their leggings off to go running, like Flojo, Honestly, what's the point in having international sport? Which kind of brings us back to where we were about should the Olympics even have the Olympics? We're basically saying that the the sudden crop of thirty-something sprinters who are lopping huge chunks of time out of long-standing records are, are doing it because of magic shoes. That's where we're leaving that, and we're coming back to the question of should the Olympics go ahead? I'm with Eric Murray on this. And I'm not just with Eric Murray on this because he's Eric Murray. He could eat me for breakfast. Uh, he's an Antipodean Viking um, rowing god. No, they shouldn't. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. They're being held in a place that's in a state of emergency. The IOC is making athletes sign waivers so that if they die or are seriously injured, um, it's not the IOC's fault. It's on them. Uh, and speaking as someone who has had COVID and long COVID, which um, I know that we've joked about it on the podcast, and I, I know that my partner in Pod Lewin found it immensely funny to tell me jokes just to make me laugh because he liked watching me go purple. It's really not very pleasant. And I'm lucky because I'm still here. Okay, I'm not an international athlete. I'm not an elite athlete. I was never in that category. But I know how fit I was before COVID, and I know that, the, that what I am now is the shadow of it. And why would you... Why would you wish that on young people? Now, I appreciate from the athlete's perspective, it's the Olympics. They've been probably working towards it since they were teenagers. You know, and I remember the famous survey that if you took this drug that guaranteed you a gold medal, but you would die young, there was an overwhelming response of 20-something athletes who said, I would take the drug and I would take the gold medal and I would take my chances. And I'm also speaking as someone who rode at their last Henley with a fractured ankle because he didn't want to tell his coach because he didn't want to be put out of the boat while it was healing. I know the imperatives of when you've got something big coming up. This is not about the athlete. The IOC in the Olympics is not about the athlete. It's not about the athlete experience. It's not about the purity of sport. It's about the fact they need to keep the money coming in. 
Should it be going ahead? No, of course it shouldn't. It's fucking idiocy. But it's going ahead anyway. What do you think they should do instead? I mean, I'm presuming that they're, they're doing this thing. So like, okay, by the way, if you're an athlete, you have to be double-backed before you come here. I have an idea, um, and I did pitch it to the IOC, but they didn't take it. You, you have young children. I have young children. I've been introduced to something called Roblox recently, um, where you have to collect things on a, a screen. And, um, you know, uh, I think one of them is, was um, called Feather Family, where you have to be a bird and build a nest and things. And, you, and another was called Horse World, where you do something similar with horses. I think they should have just had an international... Olympics Roblox competition and handed the medals out based on stuff like Adopt Me, Feather Family and Horse World. You've, you realise we've literally just lost about 75 of our 150 listeners right now. Yeah, we've jumped the shark <laughs> on that one. We've totally jumped the shark. You, you are literally recommending the eSport exclusive Olympics. It's like Minecraft without the fun bits where you get to murder skeletons. I have, hu- I have a huge amount of respect for people like Matthew Pinson and, and Steve Redgrave and, and, and Hodge and, and other people and because I recognise that um, even though I did their sport, I couldn't do what they did. I'd like to see them actually find the golden feather in Feather Family. It's a lot harder than you think. Oh, in many ways, I'm quite glad my wife has banned computer games from the house. Sensible. Um, I mean, it, I, would, I would also say it's kind of, I miss computer games. But anyway, so you reckon they shouldn't be going ahead. I'm kind of just so keen basically to see British boats talk foreigners that I've almost overlooked this basic fact that, yes, we're going to be sending tens of thousands of people to a country with rising cases and put them in probably quite crowded it's just it's basically is a new variant waiting to happen you know you send them there for two weeks and then you bring them back home it's just i mean it's it's an international super spreader event on 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 an unprecedented scale yeah yeah on steroids (laughs) quite literally it's unprecedented. And will there be deaths caused because of this? Yes. Will there be long-term illnesses caused because of this? Yes. Will there be medals won? Yes, of course there will be. But this is, this is, like, this is like going right. That village over there has got really bad bubonic plague. Okay, let's get everybody from around the world to visit the village with bubonic plague and then go back to their village. And, you know, what do you think is going to happen next? It's, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It does seem... What would you do? How would you decide the medals? If you don't like my Minecraft Roblox idea, which, frankly, I'm going to patent, because that's genius, um, what what would you do? I would basically go around Sydney, Athens, Beijing, London, Rio, um... Not Atlanta, because Atlanta was crap. Um, where, where was 92? Barcelona. God, everybody Barcelona loves Barcelona. Good games, Everybody loves yeah. Barcelona. Um, and I would say, right, so Barcelona couldn't have the track cycling. They had that wonderful outdoor velodrome. 
they kind of trash like diving because they had the like the diving thing that was on top of the hill. Yeah. Um, blatantly, we can have the rowing. Everybody loved Dordie Lake. Yeah. It was it was absolutely quality. Um, I think you-, you can probably distribute like so you can have the track events in LA. You can have the field events in Paris. You can have. Are you advocating an international game? I'm advocating a distributed Olympics. You put the shooting. I mean, so I, I I thought about this mostly for the Commonwealth Games, but it's like, why would you have? If you had the Commonwealth Games in London, let's say, which mm. it'll happen pretty soon, you have the Commonwealth Games in London. You're going to get, like. 5,000 people watching the badminton. If you have the Commonwealth Games, but you put the badminton in Kuala Lumpur, you're going to get 50,000 people watching the badminton final in Kuala Lumpur live and loving it. Obviously, bad idea with COVID, but you have you can distribute certain things around the place, I think. Yeah. Um, and you can... And realistically, the overwhelming majority of people watch the Olympics on TV. And so if you're now just going to Dorney Lake and then back to the Bird's Nest Stadium for the marathon or something like that, I think the majority of people would actually get just as good as experience. I think you could probably have a really good experience for the athletes as well. And you wouldn't have this kind of like really kind of dodgy, we're going to send 18,000 people from around the world to one place and then send them all back home, which I think is insane. I also think it's a way of distributing the costs of the Olympics around the place to make it a lot easier. I think so. And, and, you know, seeing as the IOC is revenue driven, it should also consider the fact that, as you pointed out, we, we you know, I was lucky enough to go to Dorney in, in 2012 uh, for the rowing. Uh, but that's the only Olympic event I've ever been to anywhere. We do watch it on TV. And therefore, if you move it around different countries, you, had diff- you, you, you have different... Um, advertising possibilities you you had diff you have different cutaway possibilities you have different programming possibilities yeah. and it sounds eminently sensible which is probably why the ioc will never do it because whenever they've done anything that's eminently sensible i can, I can see the downsides to it i can see if you don't have those eighteen thousand sports people in the same place at the same time first of all the athletes village is going to be a lot less fun afterwards well there'll be less condoms to pick up yes indeed um, if, if you if you're sensible, I, I think it's a way of prefer, of distributing the costs of the event and making it so you can distribute the pain of the event because you don't want to shut down bits of London as we did in 2012 for two weeks. You don't want to, you know that that doesn't that's an additional cost which is just like crazy and particularly if you have what 50 years worth of olympic venues around the place that you can just tart up and repurpose and get going again 
you know, and, and probably, you know, the athletics stadium, that's got to be in a central place. You know, that, that, is, that is what everybody's going to be campaigning for, is to have the athletics there. And then you distribute all the other events around to where it makes sense to have them. I mean, obviously, the Olympic model has evolved over the hundred and so years that it's been, but it's always been based on the experience being in one place. We are moving into issues of climate change and resource management and all the rest of it. You are, you are arguing, essentially, not just for a sensible Olympics, but for a, a more sustainable Olympic model, rather than any one country spending, and, and I'll just point out, nine billions when, when we budgeted for two billion on an event that doesn't have a noticeable legacy afterwards. Yeah, but it was fun. It was great for a bit of four and a half billion a week. I had a great time. I loved it. After Sydney, I think that London 2012 was the best modern, uh, uh, you know, Olympics and since Sydney. I thought Sydney was great as well. I mean, yes, it was in, it, it was in Australia and we should always, we should always remember that, that what British people have to do is beat Australians in boats. But that said... But we did. But we did, so that's fine. Twice. um so okay so we're heading towards a sustainable olympic model and obviously the last time we said that that nobody from a major sporting organization listened to us one of the um senior people got in touch with us and said that they did so we know that the the ioc isn't listening but if it is get in touch with us and and we'll happily share more of lewin's idea um so we are going is, sorry, is that, is that my idea? I'm sure. I'm sure. I've just like stolen that from someone else. But never mind. I've not. Um, I've not heard it mooted before. I've not heard it mooted before. So yeah, you can you can take it and make a lot of money from it. Or, or the IOC will basically take it from you and make a lot of money from it. Yeah. So, but like speaking of sustainable Olympic programs, if if you're coaching a, you know, what you hope to be a sustainable Olympic team. I think it helps to understand what makes a great participant in that sport that you're coaching, don't you, Aaron? I do. Um, Are we now moving on to the question of, I believe, if my maths is right, British rowing is taking 45 athletes uh, across to Tokyo and a large team supporting them. And yet the only story in town appears to be the mighty, the magnificent, the wonderful and the inimitable Helen Glover. Returning, returning to quite possibly win her third Olympic medal. I think gold medal is possible, but there's gonna, that would just genuinely be superhuman. But I would also say that Judging on form so far this year, and we haven't seen a great deal, and there are lots of boats we haven't seen how fast they've been rowing and what they've been doing, but, and also, bizarrely, I haven't actually read Fat Sculler's preview of any of the Olympic events just because I've been, um, you know, I've just been shouting at people on Twitter in an incredibly constructive manner rather than doing something useful. Um, I would say that, in women's rowing in Great Britain and going back to 2012 when we dominated women's rowing in women's rowing she's our only real medal hopeful her and Polly Swan and 
if we kind of look at the training history of this Olympics for her and Polly Swan, it's a little bit thin. I think this this breaks down into a couple of, of areas that we should probably discuss, which 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 is that we do have forty five athletes going, you know, and we have medal hopefuls and. We're we're only talking a week after England very very um, magnificently failed to get past Italy uh, in the European Championships, and we're looking forward to a sport where we do tend to win things, and we probably will this time. But we have forty five other rowers going, and we're only really talking about or hearing about hell. It will be a superhuman effort. I mean, off the top of your head, other mums who've come back to to Olympic glory. I mean, I can think of Ingrid Christensen, the, the kind of distance runner in the in the eighties, who, who who came back. There's probably. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's also Fanny Blankers Cohen, who was three months pregnant at the time she won four Olympic gold medals in 1948. It's it's not a non-existent phenomenon. I think that it does happen, and it happens often enough that there is this kind of there's meant to be this sweet spot of returning when. Um, sort of sometime postpartum when it's essentially you kind of like your body's getting back to normal but you've still got the dramatically elevated level of red blood cells that come from pregnancy Um, there is meant to be a real kind of like sweet spot of performance and adaptation that you can get as a returning mother I think that's completely outside of what Helen Glover is looking at at the moment. It's not an easy thing to do. She has said that the Olympics is something she is focusing on, but her priority is quite rightly her children. It's not so, it's not so much this. It's this thing we've kind of mentioned before, which is the Glover paradox, which is that Helen Glover is a woman who had to stand on tiptoes to get into the world-class start in 2003, 2005, whenever she, whenever she entered, she didn't meet the fundamental criteria for what we were looking for in a row. She wasn't tall enough. By normal definitions, as far as I understand what she's capable of producing on a rowing machine, she's not strong enough. She's not heavy enough. But whenever she has been put in a boat, against the best in the world she's won and the question that i'm asking is how does she do it how is it that we don't know how she did it this you know we we've we've had british rowing have had access to helen glover rowing a boat for a long time now and they haven't been able to go along and say what she do that Let's say Catherine Granger doesn't do. Was Catherine Granger when she's rowing rowing a pair and getting silver with Kath Bishop? Was she a worse row? Was she pulling too hard? Was she just up against a bunch of dopey Romanians? What? Where is that? What is it that Helen Glover does that, in spite of the objective characteristics we can ascribe to her, makes her move the boat so fast? And why can we not distribute that to other members of the British women's elite rowing 
environment. What you're actually asking is is not a question about Helen Glover, if I if I understand you, and let's be honest, I, I frequently don't for comic effect, but on on this occasion, I, I'm I'm trying to stick with your scientific brain from my more humanities-led one. We run on a four-year Olympic cycle usually. Yeah. Okay. We are given millions of pounds in funding, uh, British rowing in particular, because it's a very successful sport. The orthodoxy that you and I grew up with in the Redgrave and Pinson era and the, and the, the, the Grobler era and the Agecroft era that we went through is that athletes need to train for the entirety of the cycle to be competitive at an Olympics. That's what we heard from Stephen Matt. That's what we heard from Jürgen. That's what was handed down that they're putting in, you know, every stroke in an Olympic final is worth X amount of hours of, of training. Yeah. Um, and for the athletes to perform at that level, they need a dedicated team of coaches, administrators, and professionals to support them on this journey. So four years, and that dedicated team is needed to develop the technical, physical, and psychological resources needed to compete at win. And we are very good at winning in British. British rowing is, is and we're not going to talk about British cycling yet, but let's be honest, it's our most successful Olympic sport. That's it. The model works. So, and with all due respect to a, a woman who can knock me into a cocked hat in a boat, how can a, essentially a retired housewife and mum of three come back into the boat on about nine months prep and be the best and most successful athlete in the squad? What's at play here? Is it the Oak score? Well, you've pointed out that not necessarily. Is it lungs like Pinson and Reed? Well, we don't know, you know, uh, but... I've proved that having a seven-litre lung capacity doesn't necessarily equate to having a fantastic Oak score. Is it the sort of power output that puts Ferraris to shame? Given the Oak score, we know it's none of these things. So it has to be boat-moving ability. So if it's boat-moving ability and it's feel and it's technical, and if it's technical, then why haven't the coaches worked out how she's doing it and applied to the rest of the squad? That's the question yes. we're asking. Yep. And I'd also say that the question I'm asking is... Do elite rowing coaches actually know what makes a great women's boat mover? International women's rowing and arguably elite women's rowing of any form is less than 50 years old. It's as old as me. I just, I think that there's a strong possibility that we don't know what makes a great female rower and actually we haven't had enough time to work it out and i think there's a huge amount of inertia in rowing coaching basically saying what we're going to do is going to look at men and what makes great male rowers and we're going to knock about 15 seconds per 500 meters off the erg score and try and find women who look like slightly smaller versions of those men, rather than saying, who are the ones who win? Who are the ones who win at presumably lower power? And basically saying, those are the people. So doing the time and motion thing, where the guy goes into the factory and say, who's the laziest person here? Who takes the most breaks, but has been here for more than a year? So, all oh, right, okay. How is he doing this? How is he doing? And 
finding out that the person who is taking the most breaks, going to the toilet, having a cup of tea most often, but still hasn't been fired, is actually the person doing things most efficiently. And finding more people like that. And I, th I think that is what British Rowing, partly because they've got the money, needs to investigate. And I don't believe I'm going to say this, but I think British Rowing should stop trying to find girls with big erg scores who are really tall and really strong and they should start investigating women who are very graceful, have an innate sense of natural rhythm, who are very good at positioning their body so the, the dancers the tennis players, the hockeyists, um, the gymnasts, the trampolinists, find them, see what they can do, not on an erg, not on a six second Wingate test on a stationary bicycle, but find out what they can do when you ask them to go for six months of training four or five sessions of training a week on the water. Don't even, don't even take them to an erg. Teach them to row first and then see what happens. Because what you're saying is, whatever, whatever Helen Glover is doing, it's not based on performance metrics that British rowing is currently measuring. Investigating. Yeah. yeah, because she's not at the top of the scale for any of them. And what you're also saying, and, uh, uh, you know, we can say this because British Rowing don't employ us and after this episode probably never will. Um, when David Tanner described her as being a nugget and said, we will not see her like again, the point is, well, why not, David? This is your job. Your job is to find out how she's moving the boat so well and then go and find other people who can do that. If it's not based on the metrics that you've got and the measurables that you've got, you're going to have to start looking at what she's bringing to the table. Yeah. I think the really cheap and easy thing to say at that point would be they wouldn't have said that if it was a man, but I actually think they would. I think if they were faced with intangibles and imponderables, and to be honest, we've always had male rowers who have brought a certain degree of intangible and imponderable you know, it's the, the Tom Jameses and the Tim Fosters, the technical wizards. And that's fine. That's great. They are there on the male side too. But again, nobody's turning around and saying, how do we find more of them? I mean, we've touched on this before. We've talked about it with Tristan. We've, you know, and, uh, but in particular with Eric Murray, who basically came out and said, Coaches and administrators get the money, they get the salary, they get the pension, they get the job security, and the pressure that's on them gets passed down to their athletes. This is their job. Uh, talent spotting and talent development is their job. And if they yeah. can't work out the Glover paradox, then what are they getting paid for? I think that's incredibly important. The, you know, it's a question of the people who are, who are first in line for all this money that's rolling downhill from the lottery and from the IOC before the athletes get there, we they do need to be held to account in the same way that, let's say, the guys on the start line are held to account. You know, if you are a sportsman and you don't succeed, 
you're gonna you know you're gonna hear about it particularly yeah, gonna... if you are carrying the expectations of a nation on your shoulders it's not even the expectations of a nation i mean if you are a sportsman in a in, a, in an elite program and you are not cutting it not only will you hear about it you'll hear about it first but if you continue to not cut it you'll be dropped yeah fairly obviously can move a boat so but but how because it's not on the measurables and metrics that are currently being used yeah huh? but find, find you know that that that's the scientific method right there it's we've got a hypothesis about what makes a great women's rower which is big girl about six two six minute 50 or sub six minute 50 ergo weighing in about 80 to 90 kilograms pulls very hard on the oar, keeps the blades off the water done yeah except our most our most successful olympian female yeah. olympian doesn't take any of those boxes this proves the hypothesis yeah. You need to look for something else. Now, the other thing, yeah, the other thing, sorry, before I completely lost my train of thought, the other thing is this idea that you've got to train for four years. Yeah, because she's just proved that you don't. Yeah. She's been selected, she's off, she's out, she's away. So, you know, and we've got a history of this. You know, Kath Granger got selected for an Olympic medal and... Uh, for, for, an, uh, for pretty much the one of the top boats in Rio after doing about two years training. Um, and I'm increasingly thinking that, you know, that is actually something, there's something to be said for this because I, you know, some, and I, I threw my toys out of the pram when I first read this, but again, I, I think it's probably true. There's this guy who said, you know, broke, miles make champions, woke, woke, the athlete should be presented with the minimum required stimulus to allow them to generate the required training adaptation. So, you know, again, it comes back to Jez. And what did Jez say? We've pulled the effort lever, but we haven't pulled it sensitively. We've just said, more effort. Keep going. Each Olympic cycle, we'll try and add 1%, 2% more. Rather than saying, what's the smallest amount of training that we can do? Because let's face it, training comes with risks. Yeah. Each time you go training, you might injure yourself. And that might put you out of competition. It might, put you, it might end your career. So you want to have the minimum amount of training that will allow you to win a gold medal not the maximum amount of training that you can fit in. And I think that Catherine Granger has shown this. Helen Glover has shown this. Arguably Polly Swan has shown this. Let's not forget Polly Swan, um, an absolutely incredible sweet woman, that you can train less than four years and still win medals and still be in an internationally competitive boat. How competitive? I don't know. But everybody is aware of the concept of gold medal time. Everybody's aware of the idea if you have 20 degrees seawater and not a breath of wind, how fast the boat has to go in order to 
win a gold medal. And I think we should probably now start working backwards from the amount of training we're doing and the number of years of training we're doing to get into the point of saying, what's the minimum amount of training we can do and still hit gold medal time? Is this coming back to, uh, around towards ideas of athlete welfare and the fact that more and more we are seeing um, athletes having back surgeries and hip surgeries and that kind of thing who've been involved in rowing programs, but also the, and again, you know, coming back to, to Eric's point about athletes coming out of programs who um, then have to start their lives again. And he was advocating yeah. the, the, the idea of having a part-time job, you know, having, having your professional vocation, spending some time doing that as well. Actually, coming no, back to okay, one what he was talking about one afternoon a week, but I'm the, the guy I would say okay, he no, he, here is the gold standard for this argument. Um, I don't know if you remember him, Tim Brabant, the sprint, sprint kayaker, immense athlete, medals coming out of his ears in both. Now, he said he only trained for two years. Now, it's kayaking and not rowing. It's arguably a little bit less competitive, he says, um, not being able to do anything they, they do. But he trained for two years. And he said, two years after the Olympics, I'm an unusually fit trainee doctor. Two years before the Olympics, I'm an unusually qualified Olympic athlete. That was how he lived his life for about three Olympic cycles. And I don't know if that isn't something that we should be working towards, whether that's, whether we're talking about new athletes coming in or whether we're talking about established athletes who you can basically say, so it's like, let's say you win your first Olympic medal. I'd say one of your rewards is you don't train next year. We'll give you a training program and it'll look a lot like being a member of Molsey or, you know, going for their Henley boat. You're going to have to do agecroft amounts of training, but you're not going to be doing your, or it might, it might be less than that. I don't know. And then it's going to be right. Okay. It's going to have to be three, you know, there's going to have to be three years of full-time training. You win two Olympic gold medals. Let's push it back. Let's see if we can. Let's see if we can get you there in two years. You win the fourth. Just, just rock up on the day. We'll give you. We'll see if you still fit fit into a lycra. But you know, yes, I think, I think we have underestimated the impact that the current training program has had on the bodies of the individuals who've done it. I think we probably need a proper examination of the costs of that. So we're not in a situation such as they have with NFL, such as they might be going into with football, with concussion and dementia and things like that. But I really do think that at some point, well, I think Helen Glover has shown that the right athlete doesn't need the four years. It is a valid point, and the evidence shows that it's something that, that should be looked at, not just the, the evidence of Helen Glover, but actually the, the impact of, of 
um, you know, when, when, when I was smaller and my mum in her forties suddenly decided to take up running and, you know, she currently has more marathons under her belt than I do. A marathon was a big thing, but now it's not one marathon. It's multiple marathons. It's five marathons in five days. It's 20 marathons in 20 days. It's doing the, you know, the, the bar for physical attainment has, has obviously evolved in, in our lifetime. And with it, the demands that are placed upon elite athletes have evolved in within our lifetime. You know, Sebco winning Olympic golds based on running 200 meter sprints with his with his dad in Sheffield is now a full time team of administrators, coaches, psychologists, nutritionists, professionals, liaison officers, transition officers. These people have got good salaries. They've got career paths and career plans within an organization. And you're now going to say, actually, we don't need a third to half of you because we're not going to, the program is not going to be as intensive. They're not going to vote for that. You know, they're, they're not going to vote for their own extinction. They're, they're going to stick with the, 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 the statistics, the evidence shows that most athletes need this highly intensive, very demanding four-year cycle. And we are all necessary so the first thing i would say in terms of the physios the psychologists the physiologists the coaches the administrators straight up you're getting public money and it feels a lot like this whole olympics thing particularly in the more successful sport is looking like a cushy job for a lot of people at the moment it's a cushy job where you get to go to the same canteen as the athletes and have the gourmet five-star food. Okay, there I'm being slightly snippy, but at the same time, first of all, I'd rather see more money going to the athletes. Yeah. You know, what, what I said to Jez, if we're looking to, you know, what are the levers we've still got to pull? He said the psychological and technical lever. I reckon there's a financial lever. You want to get more people into rowing, how, you know, Constantine Leloudis, classic example, is a guy who dropped out of rowing because he had a very, very lucrative career that was saying, we'll wait for you, but not forever. He, he's gone off to be some McKinsey management consultant, and he will probably be a master of the universe, possibly a conservative prime minister within about 20 years. You know, that's a bit of a shame. So, but, you know, Maybe we need to think about not paying a physiotherapist and not paying a sports physiologist. And maybe we need to think about boosting his salary by threefold. And there you go. There's an established, capable gold medal winner. And so there are all these kind of things where you're thinking there must be other ways of distributing the money. I, I think, like in football, I think the money should go to the, to the performers. Possibly they then need to take some of that money and distribute it back too, but I think they should have more of a say in where that money goes. And they're the people that everybody is going to see. They're the people who want, they're the people at the sharp end. And you'll notice that there is no other job in the world where the people at the sharp end are collecting as little of the money, certainly within sport, if you're the performer, you're not seeing much cash in Olympic sport and certainly not in rowing. And so I would say 
more money, less time training. That's going to be my recommendation. Okay. And of course, because British, because British Rowing listens to us intimately and bases all of their institutional policy decisions on what we come up with, um, we look forward to being rewarded financially. Just to... Just Somebody to buy us a pint at Henley. Buy us a pint at Henley and you can have the idea. Just to come back to Helen, and she has the first rowing, the first mainstream rowing documentary since Gold Fever coming up. Oh, know? yeah. The mother of all comebacks. And, and let's be honest, Gold Fever was groundbreaking. It, it, I would love, I mean, the first thing is, I would love to see if she manages to nail the gold, I would love to see the numbers on the uptake of uh, new people into rowing post the mother of all comebacks versus the uptake into rowing post Gold Fever. Because I, I know that I certainly went down to the boathouse after Redgrave's last stand because of gold fever, because of the drama, because of that fantastic race. And I know lots of other people who did as well. So there's there's that idea. And okay, we've established that that she's a mum coming back. That's not unprecedented. Dad's coming back. Well, I'm not sure that Steve Redgrave is the best example. There is a famous clip of him handing back his screaming child to uh, his, his uh, long-suffering wife and saying, I'm going training now. Um, that's not the representative model. I would like to think that men have moved on since then. I know certainly uh, in your case and also in my case, the more covered in wee and poo I was, the happier I was. It's not a mum thing and a dad thing now. It's I feel what parents in a modern age would do. So, um, hang on, you're, you're not talking about that strange bloke who collects wee outside the toilet at Henley. He did actually ask me to poo in a cup once, but I, I thought that was going a bit too far. I, 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 I would say that I think it's a bit more of an achievement for a woman to come back after the birth of their child than for a man to come back after the birth of their child. It, uh, apparently, it's, uh, it's a bit harder on women than it is on men. No, well, obviously, there's the, there's the physical act of carrying the child for, for nine months, and I appreciate that that has biological ramifications and an impact upon a, a, a lady's body. I would like to place on record now, and if, if my daughters, when I am dead and gone, ever bother to listen to their old fart of a father back when he was capable of drawing breath and then putting words on it, um, I would have happily carried both of them because they are utterly fantastic, and I would have worn my stretch marks with pride had that been, that been available to me. I'm sure in, in in the future, at some point, the way that hipster culture is going, um, they will come up with some kind of technology where, the, where a couple decides to have a baby and it's the man who gets the fetus implanted in his stomach. Um, not sure where it'll come out. Uh, might not be covered in, in, in we uh, as much as covered in poo, but that these are these are you're distracting me now with 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 dystopian fantasy issues. Yes, what I want to ask is is has British rowing missed a trick? I, I rather think that we think that it has. Now, we aren't employed by them, so we can pretty much say what we want at this point, but um, I'm going to work through our thinking behind this. We had a meeting with British Rowing in January of this year to discuss yeah. to discuss getting the athlete stories out there. Now, yep. the, th- the thing about Gold Fever was one of the reasons that it worked, besides the fact it was a Homeric epic of a narrative, I mean, Steve Smith, Matthew's third, James finally getting a shot after injury and illness, him coming back, the haircuts, the personal relationships, the, the the girlfriend issues, the surgeries, the drama, the selection, and all of the rest of it. It was a macro narrative at a time in Britain where you had four broadcasting channels, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, and Channel Four, 
that was it. That was your mainstream media. And you, you only had a certain amount of, of, of journalistic outlet and it was dominated by the traditional print media. This is 2021. This is the age of the micro-narrative. This is the age of the micro-narrative thread on Twitter. There are hundreds of social media platforms. There are a thousand ways to digest content. Now, we suggested a range of options. We tied them in with the selection and racing program. We, we, we floated the idea of a, of a meet the athletes, like a, a mini interviews disseminated across YouTube and Twitter and platforms. So you can put faces and stories to names. Um, we had a follow the boat idea, which are mini gold fevers with regular episodic shows that track the progress of different boat classes as they build towards Tokyo. So you have regular check-ins with the athletes, you cover training, you cover selection, you cover coping with the pandemic, racing in a time of plague, essentially, mental health issues, physical issues, uh, final selection days, first, first races, final training camps. We also floated the idea of a meet the team where you have mini interviews with the team that supports the team. So we can finally put the faces on faces and names together for, for those who are essential for helping the athletes prepare. And all of those micro-narratives built into a macro-narrative showing British Roy... I'm, I'm just going to stop you there. I don't think that meet the team behind the team is going to work anymore, given that I literally just said, I think a few of them might be able to lose their jobs and the money be given to the incredibly wealthy Eton graduate who may well go on to be the next Conservative Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. I'm just saying, I think I might have like burnt our boats on that one. Yeah, you might have, you, you might have um, I believe the technical term is shat the bed on, on that one. So, <laughs> um, yes, uh, but yes, that was the idea that we floated. And the whole point yeah. was when you have Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and, and all of these various platforms, these micro narratives, which wouldn't be you know, an, an hour-long program going out once a week to the entire nation, but would just filter out slowly across social media, would build into a macro-narrative which would show British rowing as what it is, the most successful British Olympic sport in history. And with none of the baggage and crap that's completely torpedoed British cycling, there's no magic shoe controversy. It's just hard-working men and women putting it all on the line to represent their country. Now, we had the meeting um, with a chap called Kenny Bailey, and we put together breakdowns, we put together all of that stuff, and we had nothing. We had no comeback, we had no feedback, we had no, these are, these are great ideas, lads, can you give us costumes and schedules? Or even, these are great ideas, lads, would you do it for love? We didn't even have lads, these are shit ideas. We had nothing. We didn't even have, these are good ideas, lads, but can we do them in-house? We just got nothing back, we didn't hear anything back. And we're now two weeks out from an Olympics, less than two weeks out from an Olympics. We've got 45 amazing athletes on the, on the way. And the only story is, is Helen's. And she deserves that story. It's a fantastic story. She's an Amazonian warrior queen of the highest order. But what about Rebecca Louise? She's an Amazonian queen. Emma Ford. I'll, I'll take her as an Amazonian warrior queen. I would take Jack Beaumont in the quad as an Amazonian warrior queen. I think that in the age of social media with, with these amazing athletes, I think we've missed a trick to present their stories in a cohesive and, and all-encompassing way. Now, I could be entirely wrong. I know they also have the Road to Tokyo documentaries coming out, and perhaps we will see all of those stories contained within that. Perhaps some of the ideas that we 
ran past Kenyon, we ran past British Rowing, will appear there, in which case we look forward to the royalty checks dropping into the inbox. But I also think that we're making a valid point. These documentaries are going to drop the week before the Olympics. They are going to contain very interesting things, and we will all watch them, of course we will, but surely when we have such a build-up for such a major games, and we have such opportunity to develop narratives over a longer period of time, and to bring a greater awareness to the sport, that's something that we could maybe look at. Um, yeah, and I think we need more stories, because being stat given that I am, I actually went onto the government website that deals with this, and I had a look at participation in water rowing, and the figures are not good. They have dropped by half since 2016, 2017. Um, the number of people who actually turn around and say, I, uh, I have rowed twice in the last 28 days on the water has gone from 120,000 men and 60,000 women in 2016, 17 to 90,000. No, no, it's less than that. I, I, I think it's, I think it's 60,000 men and 30,000 women in the last year that figures are available, which would be 1920. Right. And you can say, oh, no, that was the plague year. Well, it was only up till April 20. That was when the year finished. And also, it's a strict, steady downward trajectory. It really is. British rowing needs to be doing everything it possibly can. I would say I'm not particularly surprised um, that we didn't hear back. I don't think we're particularly clubbable. I think the audience that we have, thank you, dear listeners, such as they are, appreciate us for the fact that we are essentially on the outside pissing in. And I'm, you know, and, and to a certain extent, that is just who we are as people. And we're not particularly clubbable. We're not the people who, you know, you know, if, if Trash Carswell goes into Leander, people are going to be falling over themselves try and buy her a drink and talk to us. If we go into Leander, people are just going to look at us and say, isn't that Alex Gregory's twin brother and his good-looking mate? Um, I can't yeah. believe I can't I, believe you've just said that I'm not clubbable. I would love to join Leander. And yes, you're right. If yeah, we went I, in. And I, I, think, I think we could. I think we should. And we've, we've really sort of like, I, I think we've missed the trick. And I, I think... Jack Beaumont might be a little bit busy to put us forward at the moment, but I would really love to do that and become more of an establishment player. But we are sarky, we are irreverent, and we will say what is on our minds. And if that means we think there's something wrong with the way the British rowing is being run, we will say that. And that is not you know, I'd love to say that, ah, oh, yes, in any other field of human endeavor, that would be appreciated greatly. It's not. Nobody, nobody loves the sarky arsehole and sitting in the corner cracking jokes at their expense. 
And that I am afraid is us. And I'm afraid that is the role we have adopted in our lives. And we have to live with the consequences of that. It just seems like a missed opportunity that it's, the world is the world is built on narratives. Our lives are narratives. We tell stories about ourselves and, and others, you know. Um, and there are all these narratives, and we've we've learned this on the pod. We, you know, talking to everyone from Tez to Kate to Di Binley to 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 Hodge to Eric to Jez, everyone in rowing has stories. And if you think that the only athlete in these forty-five who has a story worth telling is Helen's, then I don't agree with you. I think every single one of those athletes has a story to tell about their journey in rowing and their journey in life. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you going to be able to watch the track cycling? How are you going to feel watching the track cycling? Honestly and genuinely? Yeah. British cycling has been so quiet for so long. Oh, no, I've already used that joke. Um, yeah, I'll watch it. Of course I'll watch it. And, and, and of course, if we start beating people, I, it, it will be great. But let's be honest, and this is saying nothing about the current athletes in the squad, I simply don't believe in British cycling anymore. It's like Peter Pan and Tinkerbell, you know, my fairy has died. That's not yeah. a metaphor. That's got nothing to do with the guy who got me to pee in a cup at Henley. <laughs> But my, my belief fairy in British cycling is no more. She has gone and joined the choir invisible. This was, this was the thing that when the first rumours started to swirl, whatever that was, um, about, you know, about the jiffy bag that mm. went out to the 2012 Tour de France, once... Once you sort of like question that, it's not just you're questioning Team Sky. It's not just it's another fucking dodgy road cycling team because they were all dodgy. Fine, fair enough. You know what it's like. But the people involved, you turn around and I would say emotionally I wasn't prepared to, to answer those questions. I wasn't prepared to say, what if since Sydney, pretty much, Craig McKilo inspiring before getting out there, how, however far back you go, you sit there and you have to ask, argue that a lot, you know, the jiffy bag with the tram alone going out there, that's like the medicalization of sport. That's not necessarily straight up doping in the way we necessarily understand doping. That's kind of, that's the abuse of the therapeutic use exemption certificate. I don't, you know, does, does that mean you get canceled out of the win? Does that mean you lose your Olympic gold medal? Do you get respect retrospective ban? I don't know. I know it's not the same as using patches of testosterone gel which were in, which had been ordered by the team doctor and delivered to the velodrome. This is the thing. It's, the velodrome was meant to be different. The Manchester velodrome was this kind of gleaming diamond in the muck of this is how cycling can be when we just work hard. And if that is tarnished, I'm thinking about some of my most cherished sporting memories being tarnished. 
from the past 20 years. You know, when you, when you think about London 2012 and when you think about Beijing and the dominance of them in the men's sprint and, you know, and sort of like with the new stars and Katie Archibald and um, Laura Trott as she was then and Kenny as she is now, and you think about all those things and then suddenly there's a doubt. And that is actually, that's a very, very difficult thing personally to deal with. Because when I watched those, I genuinely felt as though I was part of something greater. I felt that Great Britain had done something great. Okay, you'd cycled around the track four times. But it's not just that because everyone else is trying to do that and we did it better. And I think a hell of a lot of people felt a sense of belonging that they're now singing. What well, was that real? I know exactly what you mean. It meant something because we did it in the right way. Yeah. Or at least we think that we did it in the right way. I don't believe anything that I see on a running track anymore. I, I will watch the performance. I will enjoy it. It'll be dramatic, but I don't, I don't believe it anymore. Um, yeah. Cycling and rowing are probably the last Olympic sports that I believed, especially with what you said about, you know, the, the, the apparent ethos of the GB team where I thought we're doing this better than everybody else and we're doing it the right way. The only sport that I look at now and think about that is British rowing. And we've had questions about British rowing, you know, in the past, and we've talked about the program and the training and what have you, but I can, I can look at, I can look at a Hodge or I can look at a, at a, at a Steve Redgrave. And I know that at some point that piece of my past, which is all bound up with what I was doing in my life, what the decisions I made that then maybe led me to rowing when Andy um, won in Beijing, the way that they won coming down to the boathouse and talking about it, feeling part, part of it, part of something bigger than yourself. I know that that is not going to be shat on from a great height by a team doctor at some point being revealed to be a very weak and manipulated individual. Um, and I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I, it's, it is. How will I feel watching Brits at cycling? Conflicted, I guess. Yeah. Disillusioned. I'll watch it. But when they win, it won't feel the same. Yeah, I mean, part of me hopes that it's like one of them, just, just one event, we don't actually win. And then you can think, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe they are clean because they're not beating everybody. Um, I don't know. Um, but it does make you think, you look back. And kudos to Ross Tucker, Science and Sport podcast, which is a, and he's both a much cleverer man than I am and probably a much better podcaster. He, he called the marginal gains thing a long time ago. He was... He was basically saying, look, 
I'm sorry, guys, this, this isn't enough. What they're talking about, you know, the pillows, all of these things, it's not enough to achieve what they're doing. And he was absolutely excoriating of, of Chris Froome. I'm fairly sure he's, he's gone out there and he's dropped tweets suggesting that Chris Froome's famous 2013 attack on Mount Von 2 was uh, electrically assisted, shall we say. Um, and, you know, go back and look at it. And he does seem to struggle with his pedals a little bit. At right. Um, I'm, I'm going to leave that up to people to make their own decision. Um, he's ne- Ross has never said that. Um, he, he's never been that out and out about it. Um, but I, you know, again, flat out, I argued with him about this probably on Facebook because I just thought, you know, you've, you've got no evidence. I think he was probably closer to being right than I was that something dodgy has been going on and it's certainly been going on since 2010 and then how far back that's reflected into the velodrome, I don't know. Where I'm not my normal, I want to know the truth. I'm almost at the point where I'm just sitting here and quietly saying to myself, I hope they get away with it because then I don't have to know and I'm very ashamed to admit that. Yeah, because it's, I mean, that's the thing. You should choose your, you know, you should choose your heroes and heroines wisely because a lot of them do let you down. I, I think in some instances, certainly in, in the rowing world, uh, we've been very fortunate because our, our, our heroes and heroines haven't necessarily turned out to have feet of clay. In other sports, I mean, it, this is the Olympics and also, you know, my, my old age entry into further old age episode. We are looking forward to the Olympics, but I think we, we generally don't feel they should be going ahead in the format that they are. We will be watching them, but we will be looking at um, performances with, and I don't want to suggest that we're jaded, you know, that somehow we're now, we're in our 40s, we're old farts and we're jaded. We're not. We, you know, the, the whole point about sport, other than the fact that it is wonderfully glorious to be physical and to feel your body responding physically is that you can actually suspend disbelief you can watch a Usain Bolt do a, you know a 9.58 and just have your mind completely blown by what yeah. a human being is capable of but by and large those moments now are few and far between yeah and we will be given performances in these Olympics that are sold as being groundbreaking amazing pushing the barriers of human performance, time standing still, all of that stuff. And we will watch them, and the commentators will be saying all of this hyperbole, and we will know at some point that athlete is getting pinged. And that performance will either be struck off or be thrown into doubt. And that's not a nice place for a sports fan to be. I mean, just to come back on the Chris Froome and the the electrically assisted bit, um, can I ask, Helen Glover and, and, uh, and her partner, is their boat made by Fabian Cancellara? As we, as we wind down, is that the reason for her phenomenal boat-moving abilities? Is, is, Helen Glover's, uh, is, is Helen Glover's boat made by 
Fabian Cancellara's favorite Italian engineer? No, is the simple answer. Um, Helen Gutter's boat is almost certainly made by German engineers at Empacker who do a very good job of making very, very nice boats. I am going to say that there is nowhere in any part of the history of rowing this century that anybody has actually been accused of sticking a motor on a boat in order to win a race. And cyclists, should you be getting a little bit bored of being in a sport where people use motors to win races, you're welcome to try rowing. But as I've said before, and this is quite important, as I've said before, rowers think they make exceptional cyclists and don't really realise just how much time and effort you have to invest in being a cyclist to be good at cycling. Cyclists think, oh, no, I couldn't do that. It's all on the arms, isn't it? They just don't care about us. They don't know anything about us. And Look, I, I'm going to extend an olive branch to cyclists here because because we've obviously been fairly hard on them both now and in the past. If this is a this is a call out to all cyclists, including bikey Twitter, who keep piling on me every time I suggest that female cyclists should be paid as much as their male counterparts, and take great pains to educate me as to how that is that is simply impossible in the modern world. This is an amnesty to all cyclists out there. If you come and join us in the sport of rowing. Yes, it is true. We won't let you take drugs anymore. Okay, I'm sorry, but that's just not going to happen. You'll have to leave the drugs that's at not the door. What we do. But, but if you come and join us in the sport of rowing, you can eat normally again. You can. You can eat cake. You can eat cake. You can eat cake almost to your heart's content. And cake is and and cake is like drugs, but without any performance enhancing effects, and it tastes nicer. Unless you're actually thinking about like how much you want to eat cake and then you think about um you know how fast you can get back to the boathouse to eat cake and yeah. then it is it, then it is genuinely performance enhancing it does it can, work. it can be we seem to be able to cover the distance from age cross boathouse to the tesco metro on the corner and back with remarkable rapidity seeing as none of us was running regularly at the time we don't do jingoism xenophobia uh, our patriotism hasn't slipped into nationalism. We don't abuse black players for missing penalties. Uh, so we obviously don't take drugs either. And it was Jason Queeley in 2000. That was him. That was him. Yes, I remember, I remember the race. I remember watching his race and, and then looking forward to the rowing, having watched Gold Fever as well. Should we Should we leave this episode here? Should we go back I, to the I, I think we should. Um, it, admittedly, it's on a rather... It's a rather dark note, um, but yeah, let's leave it there. And ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the Olympics. There are at least some clean events, and they're mostly rowing. <laughs> <laughs>